In a world of viral variants, nothing is ever considered safe. As soon as you have figured out one, another appears, and the cycle continues. It no doubt leads to troubles, but it also leads to questions. And that's why I'm joined again by my colleague and friend, Earl Brown. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Ottawa and one of the world's best experts on viral evolution. He's here to answer your questions and provide even more insight into the impact of variants on our health and our lives. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and this is the Super Awesome Science Show SAS class on COVID-19 variants. Last week, Earl Brown and I had a discussion that might have been a little different than the other shows. After all, we have worked together for years and published together on emerging pathogens like SARS and avian flu. But our discussion prompted questions from you that were not only focused on the variants themselves, but also their impact. And there was even one that put an old theory to the test. Before we get to that answer, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I would suggest you go back now and do so. I can guarantee you will hear things you've never heard on any other show. It will definitely help you understand and appreciate the impact of variants. Class is now in session. Here's your first and theory-busting question. There's a theory out there that says when viruses mutate, they do so to decline in their virulence. In other words, it becomes less lethal. What is happening with SARS-CoV-2? Because when we hear about the variants of concern right now, it sounds like they might be up to 30% more deadly, which kind of doesn't make sense according to that law. Well, yes, there is a view that viruses tend to become more benign over time. And that may be true, but you've got so many exceptions to that. You think of things like uh, rabies virus, rabies virus, and every, every animal that's infected with rabies virus essentially dies. And that's the case with humans as well. Though when you look at the reservoir of rabies virus, you look at bats, which are one of the major reservoirs in, in North America, and they don't die. That's what you sort of want to get. But death is really sort of an epiphenomenon of, of infection. The virus has to infect you in order to reproduce, in order to exist as a biological entity. If it doesn't infect a new host and replicate, it becomes extinct. So anything that keeps the virus replicating is good. It'll get it through the day. And so losing a few hosts, uh, like 2% fatality is not very high. And, but we're talking about a virus that may have increased its fatality. Well, this is of no consequence uh, today for this virus. There's so many susceptible people. So until people start to get in short supply, anything goes for this virus. It's not going to pay a penalty for killing a few more people. The main thing is this virus is competing with all the other SARS coronavirus 2s to become the best one on the beach sort of thing. This virus has to dominate and replicate. And so these variants now are the best thing for the planet right now that it sees itself in, which is a bunch of people that are get increasingly getting antibodies. So you've got variants that are avoiding uh, antibody recognition and they grow and they spread better uh, and you're getting worse disease at the same time. So it may go against the long-term view that hopefully this virus becomes less damaging, but the general view is that anything that gets a virus replicating well in a population will be selected and those that that grow better become selected above those that don't grow as well. That's why we're seeing these variants of concern today. Which 
suggests that maybe it's not the best virus to develop a weapon, which leads me into the next question, which really is, could SARS-CoV-2 be used as a weapon in the future? I guess it could be weaponized, but uh, bioweapons have to be uh, delivered. And so you have to make them, you have to store them someplace, you have to point them, shoot them, or throw them at somebody or drop them on them. The virus has to be able to survive this whole process and then get in and infect people. And then the view is it has to incapacitate or kill everyone. And so this virus fails on start and finish here. It's a envelope virus, so it's a little bit fragile nature-wise. So it's very tough to, often people want to make powdered aerosols, powder products for, for bioweapons. So I think it'd be quite hard to make a biologically stable powderized coronavirus. They've done this for smallpox and that sort of thing, which are classic bioweapons. But I think it'd be tough to package this coronavirus properly. And then it's a little bit of a wimp. If you really want a bioweapon, you want something even more aggressive than this virus. So I think you'd have to beef up its its virulence even more. Uh, and if you're, you're uh, someone without uh, morals and wanted to destroy people, you'd have to do a better job at making a bioweapon than start with this virus. Okay, so we're going to do a 180 from that topic into the next question, which is, why didn't the researchers think of variants when they started developing the first generation of the COVID vaccine? Well, I'm sure they did think of variants as soon as they made the first vaccine, but then people didn't know if variants, when variants would show up and how extreme the variation would be. SARS coronavirus 2 is a new coronavirus, so they had little experience with it, but we've been seeing two recently emerged coronavirus. There's Lemurs that showed up about 10 years ago in in the Middle East. And then you've got SARS uh, unnumbered, but I guess SARS is coronavirus number one now in 2003 in China. So we have those and we're seeing how they work. And so they have some understanding of of the biology of those spike proteins. And uh, they started making antibodies right away and isolating them from people. And when you throw antibodies into culture with this SARS coronavirus 2, and these are antibodies that are directed to it, you can see that you get escape mutants quite easily. And these are mutating in the receptor binding site uh, where it binds to the ACE2 receptor. So they can see they were getting them, they could see they can get them and they were avoiding immunity. And so they had some understanding that escape could occur as it does in, in all viruses. But the question is, will it happen and which variants would it occur with? So you can get variants at the outset, but you don't know if you should be making vaccine against a single amino acid change in the receptor site or groups of three or which ones are going to show up and become dominant. So variation is, is, is a constant feature of life and viruses in particular. You see it happening in, in real time, but you don't know which ones uh, you should make until you have the, the filter of biology. You have to see this virus going through humans. And now we've got these variants from different countries with certain mutations happening over and over again, which is parallel uh, evolution because the same environmental condition is selecting for the same mutations. That's biology. But uh, if you're making the vaccine, you can see what's out there now and you don't know which way the variation is going to go before it happens. And that kind of leads into the next question, which is, we hear about variants coming from different parts of the world, but some of them have the same mutation why is it that some of these viruses seem to be taking on the exact same mutation, even though they're happening thousands of miles away from each other? 
That's the interesting thing, yes. And that's because those are actually the strongest mutations that mediate the biology of immune escape. And so we, we talked early on about the number of uh, point mutations you can get in a, in a coronavirus, and it's three times the genome length. So it's 90,000 point mutations you can get in that genome. But most of them are of little consequence, don't change the biology much one way or the other. Quite a large number damage the virus, whether it's ability to grow or avoid immunity. And a small number of mutations increase biological properties. And even smaller, you've got the better and the best mutations, the best with respect to changing the biology, which means infecting people with immunity and spreading better. And so that's what you're getting. And the, the, the reason why you're getting the same mutations is among all the sea of mutations are always present in every infection. These particular mutations are the ones that mediate the strongest change in biology. They are the strongest mutations. That's why initially we had the 614 mutation was the first variant type that showed up early on in the pandemic and is essentially the dominant virus on the planet. And since then, we're getting mutations in the receptor binding site, uh, such as the 501 mutation and the 484. And these are happening again and again in different places in the world because those are the mutations with the strongest effect with respect to avoiding immunity and competing with other viruses and spreading better. So these are the biologically strong mutations. We've given them an environment where they are selected. No surprise, you get them again and again. This is the sort of thing we've seen in flu many times, HIV many times, and people are, are most accepting of this for, for drug resistance. So if you apply drugs to HIV, you will, get, you will select specific mutations for viruses that become resistant to it over and over again. It's just uh, characteristic of the biology. And having these common mutations kind of helps us as we look towards that universal vaccine that we talked about last week. Yeah, you really need a constant structure. So you have to target something that doesn't change all the time. So you're probably not going to change target uh, the part of the uh, spike protein that changes all the time. You're going to go after something that can't change or doesn't change. And then you can make a, a, a vaccine with that structure, make antibodies to it, and it could bind to any SARS coronavirus 2 and, uh, and kill it in its tracks. This question is pretty interesting because I think we all know the answer based on the discussions that we've had, but is there a way to prevent variants of concern from ever happening again? Ah, well, that's very difficult. Uh, now, there's ways, there's ways of uh, fouling up a virus ability to make variants. And actually, there's a bunch of interesting research aimed at making vaccines against enteroviruses. Uh, think poliovirus is an enterovirus, and it's an RNA virus, and you have your quasi-species. And they found that with certain of the enteroviruses, other, other members in the animal studies, that you get the quasi-species, and at certain mutations that then go on to spread inside the infected animal to achieve the disease. And what they've done with some of these uh, viruses is change the RNA polymerase so it can't generate as many mutations. The quasi-species is not as rich. You can't get all the mutations you want. And they find that a lot of the, those viruses are now attenuated. They don't cause as severe disease because they can't achieve each of the steps in disease because the variants are produced in every infection and it spreads into the host. And so there's some hope that you can make live attenuated vaccines, viruses that replicate, but you, you put within them mutations that make them 
better copiers of their genome so they don't have as many mutations and those mutations those variants those variants falter in producing disease and but they are good at vaccines so it seems backwards but if you make the vi the virus less able to mutate it can be weakened it's hard to change a natural virus i was talking about a vaccine approach there if you want to change coronavirus in nature it's a bit harder to manipulate because it's out there doing its growing on its on its own terms. So hard for me to envision right now, unless let's say we got a medication, a medication that made it so the uh, the RNA polymerase couldn't make mutations as much. That could be an approach to to hobble it. It may not be able to vary as much, and our our tools, our antibodies, have worked better, and our vaccines have worked better. But I'm uh, blue skying it here. And that does lead to the next question, which is, if we can't stop the variants from happening, can we not take advantage of them using microbial genetic engineering or some other possible methods to be able to develop medical advancements or maybe even technological advancements? Well, hard for me to imagine what we would do uh, here other than when you have a variant, you have a new structure, a new biology, a new, a new structural target. You may be able to make medications that target damaging variants, but that sounds a little a little tricky to me uh, without knowing where the virus is going to go each time. Uh, I think that may be quite a big problem, just how to, uh, to see the virus coming and uh, get it before it goes there or keep it from varying as we see it varying. What about the idea of predicting variants? If we can't stop them, is there a way that we can look at the structures use computers or, or something along those lines to be able to predict what variants may end up showing up? Well, yes. Yeah, so you can do lab experiments. And actually, right at the outset, I mentioned they, they started making monoclonal antibodies and putting them with the viruses in culture. And, and the next day, you get the variants which don't bind the uh, avoid binding by the monoclonal antibody and survive. And so those experiments were done with individual monoclonal antibodies. And then you can do what's called mapping the epitopes, the epitopes are really the structural thing that your immunity sees. They're a mouthful on, on an antibody, what it, what, it's what it binds. So you find out where the antibody binds and where the mutations occur to avoid that. And you take all the monoclonal antibodies you've got and map all of those changes. And then you use them in mixture, like they're using immune serum. And they've seen in people who are immunosuppressed, who've been given uh, immune plasma from survivors to treat their covid 19 infections in the immunosuppressed people. And they're finding almost the same group of mutations are being selected uh, as we're seeing in these variants of concern. And so you can mimic what's happening in people with sequencing, or you can go into the laboratory, take their immune serum, and put it on viruses and select the variants. So it's possible to really push these viruses around in the laboratory using immune serum or, or monoclonal antibodies and then see what variants show up. And so that will help you have foresight. You'll see what can happen. And in nature, we're seeing this is happening over and over again, actually the same pattern. So it is possible to get ahead of the knowledge curve in the laboratory with respect to what variants could arise and then dealing with trying to make uh, medications or vaccines against them. So there is a good amount of lab study that can illuminate to us how the virus works and how it changes. That can be done. And that leads into another question that uh, I've been asked a few times, and that is, should I even bother trying to get vaccinated with the current generation of vaccines, 
Or should I just sit tight, keep wearing my mask, keep social distancing and wait for the next generations that are actually going to deal with the variants? Well, yeah, waiting for the perfect shot. Well, I don't know. I think people often say don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. And I think that applies here. I'm sitting here in Ottawa with not enough SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. I'd be happy to take the, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is uh, not quite as efficacious as the, uh, the Pfizer, but I would like to get my immunity on the, uh, on the chart here. So I would say boost your immunity with whatever vaccine you've got initially, and then take booster shots later as they come on. I wouldn't wait to uh, huddle down. We're all tired of this anyway. I'd get the best vaccine you've got in the syringe next to you and uh, get it into you and get your immunity going. I really don't think it makes that much sense to sit and wait, even with your, your using your procedures to avoid infection, if you can get some real immunity in your body and at least get on the, uh, the resistance chart. So ideally you'd like a vaccine 100% effective, uh, but in the real world, we've got some pretty good ones here, but they're not perfect. And unfortunately the variants are escaping some of this immunity where you're getting, uh, uh, reinfection of previously infected individuals. You know, you want to have a perfect vaccine. We're, we're pretty good here, but the variants are, are playing with that scenario. But uh, I would get any vaccine I could get initially, and you'll work with a, a variant type or boosters going down the road and try to get coverage of, of any of these variants that show up. Do you feel we'll be able to combine the flu vaccine with the coronavirus booster vaccine so that we really only have to deal with one shot instead of two? They would have to do the details, but it would be entirely uh, reasonable given that right now the, the flu vaccine is a mixture of three or four different virus types or variants as it is. And so if we're talking about COVID-19, you would be adding uh, one or two, uh, maybe to cover the variants, uh, types of COVID-19 vaccine, and you could bundle them together. And it could be entirely possible you get a flu coronavirus combination. There are several vaccines we get which are combinations. Diphtheria, tetanus, uh, polio, and pertussis are bundled together now. So as long as the, uh, the platforms are compatible, uh, one could foresee that one would have mixed vaccines in the future. And if we have multiple variants of COVID-19, they may, may be bundled together and maybe with some other viruses. This question uh, also has been asked several times, and it really comes down to the idea that it's been 10 years, we've had two pandemics. Are pandemics going to be a regular part of our future? I think they are, and let me tell you why. Uh, so we're living in the post-infectious era. When I was a student uh, in 1967, the war on infectious disease was declared one. The Surgeon General made that statement, was headlines in 1967. You know, they, they just developed vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella. Smallpox was on the run. It was eradicated in the 70s. Uh, and at the beginning of the 1900s, 1% uh, of uh, the population died every year from infectious disease, about the same amount that dies from uh, heart, heart disease and cancer. So in the 60s, we're, we're really pushing down mortality on infectious disease. And by the 80s, that 1% annual mortality had gone down to around 0.04, about 1 20th of a percent. And so great successes in dealing with infectious disease. It was the, the antibiotics, the, uh, the vaccines uh, to all childhood infections. And we had better standard of living. You know, you can't ignore uh, the status of nutrition and that sort of thing for infectious disease as well. 
that 1% of the population that used to die from infectious disease uh, is no longer getting killed by infectious disease. So that 1% in the last 50 years means that half of our population would have been dead without our advances in dealing with infectious diseases. And to think of that another way, we're sitting with a whole bunch of susceptible people who Mother Nature would have buried in the last 50 years. So we are a more susceptible population. We've got an older population and people walking around with comorbidities that would have resulted in in death in the past. I think we are ripe for being taken advantage of by pandemic uh, pathogens, and we're seeing that. We are more susceptible than we have been historically, and I think we are going to be in the age of uh, pandemics for the foreseeable time. I'm not sure what our time frame is going to be, whether it's going to be a pandemic every 10 years or something, but we are ripe for pandemic viruses that come up and rip through us. And finally, if we are playing the guessing game here for the next pandemic, what virus do you think it would be? Well, you always mirror your thoughts on the future from the past. Influenza and coronavirus are badge-wearing winners. So it could be another coronavirus, could be influenza virus. But I'm thinking RNA viruses because they're the most variable. And I would think of coronaviruses because they have recombinations. So that brings your mutations uh, from different genes together and really accelerates uh, evolution. I might think about other segmented RNA viruses. So you have the arena viruses. Think of Lassa fever, which uh, comes from rodents and kills in, in Africa. Uh, the Bunya viruses, which have three segments of RNA and there are, are just so many Bunya viruses in the tropics. So I'm thinking a segmented RNA virus or a highly recombinant RNA virus, but I could be surprised. And there you have it. I want to thank everyone who asked the question and hope you really have gained some further insight into the impact of variants on our response to COVID-19. Next week is the last show of the season, and I guarantee you it is going to be awesome. I'm going to be talking with one of the originators of the mRNA vaccines. We're going to discuss the more than 40-year history of this technology and why it has become the leader in future medical advancements. You do not want to miss this. And that is why it is best to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We are proudly part of the Curious Cast family and are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Earl Brown. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. Have a great week, stay safe, and as always, make sure to show them some sass.